наши быстрые, и наши люди мужество полны. Hello, everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of the Lines Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me today is Carrie Shockey, America's favorite labor lawyer and, uh, I, I think, official uh, local podcast union uh, uh, conciliary. How you doing, man? Oh, you know, I mean... Uh... Living the dream here in Boston. Uh, you know, the Massachusetts National Guard prevented me from getting fucking cheese slices yesterday. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, everything's great. And uh, I'm feeling really good about the future of uh, everything. And I definitely don't have a very tall glass of alcohol next to me right now. I love that there's a whole bunch of like either roided out or overweight dudes named Sully stopping you from getting like craft singles. Right. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm really excited <laughs> that like yesterday I had like. I couldn't go to the one target that's open after like eight o'clock that sells groceries in the, in the city of Boston in order to like go buy some cheese singles to put on my pizza. I ran it. All right. First of all, why are you putting cheese singles on your pizza? man? All right. So, so there's a thing, there's a thing that you, you got me fucked up right now. So there's, there's something called beach pizza and it's known to everyone who exi- like grew up on like the North shore in the seacoast of Massachusetts. So, like, from, like, Portsmouth to, like, you know, Boston-ish. And it's, like, a square slice of pizza that has a sweet sauce. And when you order it, you order it with extra cheese. And that means that you put a single slice of provolone on it. And it is, like, it doesn't exist anywhere else. I don't know how it started, but there's two companies. There's, like, it's kind of funny because growing up, there's, like, two places that sell it. There's Christie's and there's Tripoli's, and they're both right next to each other, like on the uh, on the beach waterfront in Salisbury. And everyone has very strong opinions. It's like Coke and Pepsi. Everyone has very strong opinions about which one is clearly superior, even though they're both basically the same shit. Um, and wow. they and because uh, and there's like it's one of the two like kind of um, signature dishes of the North Shore, and. As a result, it's like a real like uh, it's like a deep towny cut, and they sell frozen ones. And I wanted, and so I bought some, and I wanted to make some last night for dinner. And all I wanted was a fucking cheese slice, and they wouldn't give it to me. Just a cheese <laughs> slice, and they wouldn't fucking give it to me. We have something pretty. Uh, I, I we don't really use the word towny in Detroit, but like you know, we have Coney Island hot dogs, or these called Coney's. Yeah, and you'll have in the city themselves. Uh, you know, you have your shitty uh, suburb white guy versions, like in in like you know Waterford or Pontiac or whatever. But in Detroit, you have like you know, Lafayette Coney and like all the other ones. And there's probably somebody else from Detroit saying Lafayette Coney fucking sucks. They're all the same. Yeah. <laughs> well, didn't uh didn't Anthony Bourdain do like a an episode about Detroit where he had one of those? Yeah, I think he went to Lafayette too. Uh, he also got uh, some barbecue out of uh, my favorite barbecue joint, which is also somebody's house that they run an illegal restaurant out of. I was gonna say, wasn't it like <laughs> just like a dude like fucking grilling in his front yard? Yeah, and you can go inside and you can get fucking uh, some amazing beans and like greens and shit. Oh, it's so good. Uh, and thankfully, you know, Detroit Police Department has like uh, drug dealers to rob and stuff, so like they, they don't really <laughs> notice. Um, right. Yeah, it, 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 I'm really glad they don't bother with that shit uh you know you taught me something new about boston and massachusetts a place i have yet to be so have you ever heard of joseph byerly no so we've been doing something you know normally this show is about like idiots failures blunders 
But you know, there there there's a, a small subsect of our show that is also talking about crazy ass stuff that nobody's ever heard of, but totally happened. And that's Joseph Byerly. Uh, he follows something of a trend that we've done. We've talked about that, like a slightly apocryphal story of the Korean conscript who fight, ended up fighting for the Japanese, the Soviet, and the Nazis uh, before surrendering. Uh, we talked about Chiang Kai-shek's adopted son who fought for the Nazis in Austria. Um, I forgot yeah, about I mean, that one. That was a good one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that one's pretty interesting because he's not good at his job, but he just <laughs> kind of coasted along because he's Chiang Kai-shek's adopted son. Uh, and he also like totally murdered somebody. Uh, like I think it was like a, a house worker and the Chinese Nationalist Party in Taiwan is like, well, we can't throw you in jail because of who you are, but you're kicked out of the party. Like, yeah, that's that that's the kind of ethics I come to expect from nationalists. <laughs> uh, and, you know, there's uh, Tony Laurie who ended up fighting for the Finns, the Nazis, and then dying in Vietnam. Uh, shout out to the Viet Cong for making that a possibility. Um, you know, it's and of course we can't forget about our dear dear friend who shit posted his way to a Syrian death camp. Uh, <laughs> Oh fuck! Right, you know it, there, we we like to take our t- time out of day to talk about people who might be really really badass, but also it's just because like their story does not happen anywhere else, um, and that's what today's episode is. Because through all of World War II history, probably I'm going to pull this out of my essay, one of the most studied conflicts in human history, nobody has been able to find a single American soldier who fought alongside shoulder to shoulder with the Soviet Red Army. That is with the exception of when Joseph Byerly. And how he got there, I will say, is quite uncommon. Can I, I just want to back up for a second and say when you... So because, I've been, because I have literally nothing else to do along with the rest of America over the past couple of months, I've been rewatching King of the Hill, and all I could think of was, like, World War II is, in my opinion, the most covered, like, most studied subject in, uh, you know, the history of warfare... All I could think of was Peggy Hill. That is like a super <laughs> like, you know, uh, thanks. The day before Thanksgiving is, in my opinion, the most heavy travel day of the year. <laughs> yeah, some people would probably disagree with me uh, on World War Two being the most studied because you know there's people who've been studying Napoleon's war since uh, Napoleon's wars since those happened and the French Foreign Legion since those happened. Marx wrote about the French uh, the French Revolution. Um, so like people have been studying every conflict of history since they've happened. But I think it's just because the advent of modern technology where the shit just gets thrown in your face. Like before, um, the History Channel is all about aliens and and, and pawn shops that are also kind of named after sex jokes. It was all World War II stuff, you know? So, yeah, I miss those days, every- you know, like uh, like Hitler's secret machines or there was even, uh, did you ever watch, uh, was it Battlefield back in the day? I don't think so. Oh, that was, those were like, I want to say it was like on PBS and they would just do like a single battle for like, I don't know, like an hour or two. And they had like all these kind of like at the time, this was like mid nineties at the time, all these like kind of vaguely like futuristic graphics where it would like low swoop in over like the city of Stalingrad. And at the time it was like real. And, you know, like it would show like, you know, the, the, the armies moving around the map. And I was definitely spellbound at the age of like eight. Oh, that's totally why I ended up going like shows like that is why I ended up going to college for history. But my personal favorite, because it's the lowest, the most low effort shit you've ever seen was I think it was a history channel. I don't I don't want to give credit to the Discovery Channel because this might be the history channel where they were going over like ancient Roman battles, but they used Rome total war 
<laughs> to, to show them. Like, come on, man. Fuck yeah. That's, I mean, do that now, but with like Warhammer to like, and then the Roman legions and their dragon allies. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, like, come on, dude. It was like that, uh, that show, like, uh, like greatest warrior, whatever the fuck it was. Yes. I fucking love that show. I, I, you know what? Any, I want to be in the writer's room where they're like, Guys, I got an idea. As you like hit your fucking meth pipe because you've clearly been writing for six days straight. How about the Taliban versus the IRA? And somebody's like, do it. Do that shit. Go find extras. Oh, that was my favorite. But I just like that. Like they went from things that were like halfway reasonable. Like, you know, like, oh, the like that one. Like even that was like, all right, I don't know, whatever. Like to like, you know, kind of, you know, uh, you know, terrorist, you know, like or freedom fighter groups, whatever the fuck you want to call them. And yeah, how uh, dare you put the terrorist label on the Taliban, <laughs> you monster. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but then uh but then towards the end, I think like the last ever episode was like zombies versus vampires. And it was like, oh yes. cool. So we're like three seasons in, each season only has like eight episodes and you're fucking out of ideas. <laughs> you've you've scraped the bottom of the barrel you've gone past like ninjas versus i don't know like the eta <laughs> right. you have to go to fucking zomb- zombies versus vampires like what's their weapons they can bite and claw okay you're fired yeah like and like if, well and then they would have like the the weird like dummy thing that would be you know like the the gel torso like oh like the old vampire could play with like the force of like a thousand suns and it was like come on guys <laughs> Like so, what, and there's always an expert somehow. Like yeah. so, in your opinion, Mister Vampire PhD, like how hard can a zombie bite? Like, uh, well, uh, about as hard as a person. <sighs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> they just gonna, it's just like some Twilight ass shit. They just have them like showing, you know, like oh, and here we go to you know, like uh, I don't know, whatever. One of the fucking actors from Twilight. Like, so tell me, uh, in your professional opinion. Yeah, it's uh the uh, unfortunately the the vampires night operations discipline is ruined when they sparkle. <laughs> so, uh Joseph Byerly was born in in probably the worst time to be born uh, as a white American. And that is uh because his history reads like something of uh, of something that they would write uh, uh I don't know, like a, a grim dark version of Little House on the Prairie. He was born in 1923 in Muskegon, Michigan, the youngest of seven children. I've never been to Muskegon, haven't heard good things. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> he was born only a few years before the Great Depression, and uh, his early life quickly went down the hole, uh, at, well, at least as dark as it probably could be for uh, a six-year-old uh, white kid. His dad lost his job at the local factory, something of, of a trend for us Michiganders. Yeah, and that and, never happened again. Yeah, thankfully they figured that whole thing out. <laughs> uh, and then they were thrown out of their house, because if there's the only thing uh, that's more eternal than people in Michigan losing their job at the factory, it's that landlords are fucking bastards. Uh, accordingly, uh, so according to Joseph, some of his earliest memories were standing in huge bread lines with his family, and many times they walked away with nothing at all. Uh, this is, I assure you, he was not raised in Venezuela. <laughs> uh, but because this is the Great Depression in America, things only get worse. In order to take a job and send some money home, most of the men in his family took jobs in the Conservation Corps. Um, you know, for people unaware of the Conservation Corps, it was a job... Uh, 
this program for to, to send people out to put them to work effectively. It, it was one of many programs um, in the New Deal, uh, you know, those things that they now call communism. So, and it, it, like, and there's like principally responsible if there's a if there's a national park that has you know like trails and oh yeah all yeah. sorts of other stuff near you, particularly out west. There's a fairly good chance that it came about because of the CCC. Oh, I mean, I I was I once worked for the Bureau of Land Management as a wildland firefighter and medic, and one of our off season jobs outside of like going to hospitals and you know keeping my training up was to re clear these conservation core trails that have been there since the Great Depression. Uh, so they did a pretty good job. Uh, my whole job was pretty much just walking around and watch people like chainsaw some shit that had grown up in the way. So like they their their work holds true. Um, <laughs> but like they were you know so this meant that he was pretty much left home alone with his sister who then died of scarlet fever. <laughs> Jesus fuck. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and because this is like the area, like you know, so someone's getting struck down with some kind of horrible wasting disease. Like she's got the clopsy or something. I don't fucking know. Just like all those uh, sorts of things that just sound like something like you know, it was a terrible disease that killed thousands of people, but also vaguely sounds like a noise, uh, like caption from a comic book, like clopsy, yes. <laughs> like. The, the doctors had to just quickly think of what it was called because somebody was vomiting blood out of their eyes. Like, hmm, they got the flops. Uh, so this left his mom to be the the main person in the house to take care of everybody who was still there. But she was also working every single job she could so they didn't starve. Uh, because, you know, you couldn't just, like, wire somebody money at the time. It had to be mailed. So, you know, they they had to fill in the gaps. And also the Conservation Corps, while a job program probably one of the most successful ones in american history uh uh it still didn't pay a whole lot so like you know if you have to raise seven fucking kids you're gonna need more money uh so this pretty much meant that the kids all but raised themselves uh though they apparently did a pretty good job of it uh, a much better job than both of my parents did raising me would you say uh, that they uh for would you say that they picked themselves by up by their uh bootstraps perhaps they had probably eaten their boots by now. Um, <laughs> they picked themselves up by their feet straps. Uh, yeah, like Joseph did great in school, both in academics and sports. Uh, so much so that he was offered a full ride scholarship to Notre Dame to play basketball in 1942. Um, oh, wait, so there, high- were, there were seven kids and he got a free ride to Notre Dame? Huh. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. And, yeah, and I wonder from if there my was some understanding, sort of he was. There. Uh, I do not think he was Catholic, actually. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't seem to be a super religious person, nor was his family a very religious family. Um, nor is, from my understanding, Muskegon, Michigan, a hotbed of religious fervor. Um, but uh, Joseph turned it down uh, because about six months before, the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. And Joseph was itching to f- uh, finish high school so he could enlist in the army and so he can go and fight them. And he did. Uh, he enlisted as soon as he could uh, and became a paratrooper. You know, back when paratroopers were still useful. Uh, <laughs> like tanks, right? Y- yes, uh, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's something like uh, uh, paratroopers like, oh, yeah, well, you were a tanker. Like, you mean anything? I'm like, nah, dude, we're fucking pointless, too. I mean, I think we can all agree that the only useful branch of the military was and continues to be the Coast Guard. I am hard to disagree with you. <laughs> Uh, he completed training in Georgia in a camp that no longer exists. I believe it's called uh, Takwa. Uh, and unfortunately for him, 
uh, he did not get to go and fight the Japanese. He was sent to the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division, famously known as the Choking Chickens. Uh, Wait, what? I, yeah, this is Screaming Eagles. I deployed with the 82nd Airborne. No, I was not airborne, but I still get to make fun of the 101st. All right. No, that's, that's fair. I just didn't know if that was like specific to like the 506 or if it was just in okay it makes more sense no now. It, it's a it's a really bad 101st uh joke uh, there's a few other ones mostly they come down to the choking trick chicken or i think the 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 uh, the v the nva called them the screaming or the the yelling chickens or like the angry chickens because they had never seen the eagle before the the laughing turkeys the, <laughs> the moaning vultures um, ill-tempered pigeons <laughs> Is that what a what's that word that like people call each other and then get really upset about it on the uh Rakasan, right? R- Rokasan? Oh, the 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 Rakasans from their station in Korea, I think they're. I'm not really it, sure. Is that is that like a is that an airborne thing too? I feel like that's no, an airborne I thing. No, I think that's just another old army unit that's really steeped in its own bullshit. I say as someone who was once in 7th Cavalry. Mm, all right, I, I I only asked because I've never really cared before, but had a idle thought in the moment because I all, no, I see all that army shit too. is like fucking like you know it's all fucking Greek to me. It's like all the, like the way that you guys have like your various different patches that you wear. Like oh, this is my combat patch, but uh, this is my actual patch. But you know, then I stay in the same unit, but then I'm under this command, so then I switch my patch. Yeah, it's real dumb. Uh, also, like army units are really proud of their history until you like flip back. Like, huh? Says here you killed fifty Native Americans who went unarmed. Anyway, about World War Two. <laughs> Listen, we're only we're only counting history from like nineteen seventeen ish to about halfway through nineteen forty five. Well, what about this National Guard unit who shot strikers? Okay, so World War Two. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, it, it's all real dumb. Uh, but he was really good at his job, and he w- was almost immediately promoted to sergeant uh, and was really good with radios and demolition, which are two really fun activities that would not be really fun if you mixed them up. I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it could make a great podcast right there. I mean, you'd make like one good episode <laughs> <laughs> because that's all you'd need. It's going to be the, be, uh, the behind the bastards, uh, you know, season finale. It, much like... Uh, uh, Gorilla bomb makers. Most podcasters are also missing fingers from fucking up one one or two episodes. <laughs> so Joseph was a really good soldier. He was a stud athlete, and you know that stood out pretty much immediately. He was faster, stronger, and bigger than everybody else. But he was also incredibly smart. He was he excelled at everything he did. Uh, for instance, when there was no rifle range, um, they were training because this is World War II and they're just popping training camps up as fast as they could to train soldiers. They had to march 30 miles to nearby Clemson University to use their rifle range, which, by the way, is the most uh, uh, Georgia thing I've ever heard before. <laughs> the army the army base doesn't have a rifle range, but the school does. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, you know, yeah. for Georgia as a whole. Uh, but this didn't seem to tire him out at all, and he shot expert every time he marched that distance. See, you know, that's just, it's a little try hard. I'm not going to lie. Like, it's, a, it's yeah, a little bit too much. He's a show off. He's a show. I'd fucking hate him for you sure. Know, I mean, it, to, uh, I mean, you know, excuse the pun, but in the, uh, the legal world, we call him a gunner. Uh, you know, he's just, he's, he's trying a little bit too hard. He's a little bit of a pick me. Like, eh, I don't know how we feel about that. You know, if it makes anybody who's listening feel any better, he doesn't seem to suck anybody else into his bullshit. Like, he, he's a team player and he's really good at his job, but he doesn't try to make anybody else look bad. 
I don't know. I still would probably wouldn't get along with them. Um, Joseph admits being so good that during qualifications, he'd routinely write down other soldiers' names so that they would pass. All right. All right, never mind. He's there's hundreds of people. All right, I back that. Yeah, he... Because, he, you know, there's... I, and I've actually done something like this. Not that I was so good at something that I did a solid for somebody else, but somebody else did that for me. I think I've told the story before where I got out of doing the rappel wall because I'm deathly afraid of heights. Uh, and somebody, uh, I, I'm a nondescript tall white guy. I was even more nondescript when I was 17 because I had no tattoos. So when a drill sergeant pointed at another tall, lanky white guy and they were like, Kasabian, did you do it? He was like, uh, yeah. And then I got it out of doing the rappel wall. <laughs> Perfect. So like, cool. Um, Though Joseph points out this was actually because the soldiers were afraid of hurting themselves uh, and therefore missing out of the war. So, like, he would do extra jumps for them off, like, the training tower. uh, So, like, because they didn't want to fall and, like, break their leg and then, like, miss out of, like, D-Day or whatever. Yeah. So, like, Joseph would just, like, go do their jumps for them for a couple dollars because paratroopers got paid a a few more dollars a month than everybody else. I mean, it seems seems to be a strategy, though, that has, like, a—it's going to have an issue at some point. You know, like, yeah, you know, like do all my training jumps before I go jump on Normandy. Just it seems, I don't know, a little sus. You know, uh, the the good news is there's there's two ways that uh, being a paratrooper ends. You either land or you die. So, like, it's a self-correcting problem. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. You, you know, you only fuck this up once. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, you know, the money was good, especially for the day, and especially as, you know, a sergeant who could probably got paid like a hundred bucks a month. Uh, but he also was never really afraid of anything. At no point did he ever attempt to do anything out of fear, other than once he surrendered to save his own life. Because, it, well, he wasn't because he was afraid, it's because he didn't see a way out of it. Uh, so he graduated from training and was sent to England along with everybody else in order to prepare for the major operations that were, you know, upcoming through Western Europe. Joseph, it turns out, was pretty disappointed in the fact that he wasn't immediately going off to fight some Nazis. Instead, he settled in for nine more months of training. Uh, After this training, he was so good at his job uh, that he was thought of, if not the best paratrooper in the entire 101st Airborne, uh, which I assume is like being the most rotten dumpster in Seattle. (laughs) Sorry. As someone with an 82nd Airborne patch, I have to say that. Just, I'll move on. I, 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 I have no loyalty to any of these units. They're all, they're all garbage. Uh, unfortunately for Joseph, he was about to learn what happens to someone in the U.S. Army when they're very, very reliably good at their job. That is, he started getting selected for special extra missions that he obviously could not turn down. Uh, Joseph and one other person were picked uh, for being the best paratrooper in the entire division for a reason. See, jumping out of an airplane strapped down with hundreds of pounds of gear and landing safely enough so you don't badly maim yourself is probably kind of hard. And I have been told that it is. I do not plan on testing that myself. Uh, But apparently not hard enough for Joseph's commanders. With D-Day coming up, the U.S. is leaning onto the French resistance to aid them in their coming invasion of their country. Helping them was pretty hard at the time, with you know the literal Gestapo attempting to hunt them down and kill them whenever they stuck their heads up. Wait, did they Could, did they try debate? I've heard if you debate them. Yeah, it's actually when the Higgins boats pulled up on D Day, the, the 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 ramps dropped, and everybody in unison just said, "Debate me, you coward!" Right, just like you know, kind of like uh, the uh, the rebel that yelled that the Confederates would do, like when they were charging the Union, you know, just like. 
just screaming as you like, you know, leave your foxhole, just debate me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's how we actually defeat the Nazis is on, is on the, the battlefields of intellect. Just like just uh, calling down, just, you know, just barrage after barrage of facts and logic. Yeah, that, that wasn't 88. That, that was just a fucking logic bomb zooming past. <laughs> and if you, yeah, it was just, they're just quoting lines of, uh, 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 of Mein Kampf and we were firing back, you know, Western philosophy. I don't just know. reading the fucking Federalist Papers, just like over a loudspeaker, <laughs> just like, just, just furi- furiously spitting lines from the co- fucking Constitution at the Nazis. And that is how Ben Shapiro got his combat patch. Right. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, it was really unfortunate when his SS division surrendered. Um, <laughs> now, uh, you, you know, it, it was really hard to support the, the resistance at the time because you couldn't just wire the money or carpet bomb thousands of guns over France, though they did try that, too. Could you, uh, because, uh, you, could know, you tweet hashtag the resistance? <laughs> yeah, it, you know, say what you will about the, I, I really support the French resistance until they started breaking windows. Mm, um, yeah, I mean that's you know that's a that's a little that's a little aggressive. Um, you know, it, it really have they thought about the person that owns that building? It's a fucking shame. Yeah, I mean, know? have they know, thought about just voting against the Third Reich? Yeah, I mean, you know, like you know, and maybe they won't defeat them now, and maybe they won't defeat them in four years. But you know, after you know, maybe not for a thousand years, maybe not for two thousand years, but three thousand years from now, things might change, and I think they're going to look. Pretty foolish if they try to demand change quicker than that. Yeah, and the the best way to defeat someone who wants to murder you is by voting. Clearly. Yeah. Um, so you know the the army and you know everybody else in the Allied forces had to find a pretty clever way of delivering this stuff. Since around October of 1943, when they had made plans for Operation Overlord, the U.S. Army Air Corps and their Allied counterparts flew thousands of secret squirrel missions over occupied France. They dropped trainer teams that instructed the various groups of French freedom fighters on the finer aspects of guerrilla war. They brought them weapons, ammo, radios, but also gold. It might sound kind of ridiculous, but the resistance could use gold for various things like smuggling or bribes. Because, you know, it's kind of hard to stockpile paper money during a war as everybody's economy is literally carpet bombed out of existence. (laughs) But gold will hold its value for the most part. Wait, sorry, I'm... Maybe I've just had a little bit too much to drink. I missed the part where this was like a daytime ad on CNN. <laughs> yeah, it's actually the the, the full uh, uh, point of this episode is to get everybody to buy the lions led by donkeys gold, right? Uh, like and food it, and food buckets. Yeah, we're uh, we're no longer sponsored, but uh, if you would like to buy gold medallions from the lions led by donkeys podcast, I'll promise they are zero point zero 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 one percent gold. <laughs> uh, now, in case you're wondering that the, the gold missions, probably the most ridiculous of those, that is the one that Joseph got picked for. Um, the small problem with this, there's no good way to drop gold from an airplane. It's World War II. You can't just drop it out of a plane and expect that they land the right place. They couldn't even do that with their bombs. So they'd have to figure out a way to get this gold to the resistance. Unfortunately, that's where Joseph came in. The plan that they came up with was exactly the kind of thing that you'd expect a room full of officers to come up with. Why don't they just strap a bunch of gold to soldiers and chuck them out of a plane? It's like a smart bomb full of gold. <laughs> Jesus fuck! It's like how uh, was it the 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 one good like the the older brother of JFK died because they were like, oh, we're we're gonna create radio guided uh you know yes. like plane bombs, <laughs> and it was like, all right, so what we needed to do is we needed to you know 
we need you to uh, take off and fly it like halfway there and then jump out. We promise it'll be fine. And then the fucking thing blew up and like everyone thought that it was like some sort of surprise. Yeah, thankfully, uh, that did not portend worse things for the Kennedy family. Right. Have uh, only successes from there on out. Yeah. Uh, so how much gold could you really slap on a guy? I mean, they couldn't have been that crazy. Uh, just kidding. 500 pounds. They, they run 500 pounds <laughs> of gold. Fucking Christ. <laughs> <laughs> no, just you know like a casual quarter ton of gold on you there Larry like you know fucking have at it good luck buddy uh, at that point the parachutes that slow them down as much as they stop them from plummeting to their deaths like just short of uh, but in either case Joseph landed just fine uh, his, his, so did his partner for that matter so wait uh, did they like try so did they try this beforehand like did they uh, like I, did you have like a, like a trial run of, of like Hey, you know, we're going to attach 500 pounds of lead to you and just kind of, like, see what the parachute does. I think they were just operating off, like, well, the manufacturer says this can hold this much weight, so here you go. Good. <laughs> and, you know, during a total war where, you know, your mom is sewing parachutes together. <laughs> right, yeah, like, oh, well, really hope uh, no one dropped the fucking stitch because uh, you're going to drop a lot more. Yeah, you know that guy that was too dumb for conscription? He packed your suit. Shoot, so good luck. <laughs> Jesus fuck. The the problem is this is the French countryside, literally thousands away, thousands of miles away from Allied lines, and it isn't like there's gonna be they're gonna be able to send like a helicopter or something to exfil him out of his top secret French resistance mission. Instead, he was smuggled from safe point to safe point across Europe until he finally made his way back to the UK. The entire process took around a week, and he almost died twice. Perfect. Fucking nailed it. Just and then because this is Joseph goddamn Byerly we're talking about, his commanders decided he did such a good job on his first mission that he should go on another one. And he, and he did. I mean, so was there anything like left behind about like him just like straight up just having a death wish? Because like this no. feels like a death wish sort of situation. You know, it says that he volunteered, but I don't think he had much of a choice. It was like, oh, they're doing this again. Okay. Uh, but also, he just really seems like, have you ever met anybody that definitely, he's they're like, they're incredibly smart, but they just don't fear anything? Like that That's what I think of him. Because he's clearly not surviving these situations through sheer dumb luck. He's really, really good at what he does. But like, even the smallest lizard part of your brain is like, would scream at you not to do this. Well, I'm just like thinking of like all the other times I've ever read anything about the French resistance. And it's, you know, like... Oh, you know, they trained for three years and then they parachuted like directly into a German foxhole and were immediately like tortured by the SS until they were killed. You know what I mean? Like, I just like, I feel like there's got to be like some element of dumb luck involved because I don't know. I mean, like as good as you are, like there's just got to be there's something there. I think a lot of the dumb luck comes like when D-Day comes up with like, I happen to not be one of the people that that dropped into a tree and got machine gunned by a passing fucking German patrol. That part, I will say he kind of had that luck, but we'll get there. So he went through that entire process all over again and got once again, got smuggled over to a friendly airstrip. And in the course of the week, he made his way back to the UK. Um, these missions end up being uh, uh, something of a cornerstone of the future successful invasion of Western Europe. But almost single-handedly bankrolling the entire French resistance was not good enough for him. After surviving the next mission, he, like many other paratroopers, were packed into planes and sent off into the skies above France for their part in Operation Overlord. 
Being a demolition expert, Joseph's mission was to go forth and blow shit up. Unfortunately, Joseph was met with the realities of the airborne landings on D-Day, probably one of, if not the most successful clusterfuck in U.S. military history. (laughs) In the decades since, many people have attributed the absolute mess that had uh, become the airborne landings in France to several different things. I'm not going to try to relitigate that, but as far as the American landings go, it's almost entirely due to aircraft inexperience, uh, the, the, the air crew inexperience. Maps were bad and communication was nearly impossible due to, well, World War II communication systems, but also a strict code of radio silence during the mission. But it all really boiled down to them cutting corners in the crush and rush of war. A large percentage of American pilots had their training cut short and in many cases had simply never flown at night before that. Uh, wait, also, wait, when- wait, 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 stop, <laughs> stop. <laughs> what? Yeah, a lot of the pilots had never flown at night. Uh, and also since this is the U S army air corps, it's not the air force quite yet. And they're doing bomber missions, right? Those missions have the best pilots on them. The, the best pilots are bombers. They're, they're fighters. They're, yeah. They're yeah. So this the, is all uh, like the guys who graduated, like got a C in the class. Like, end up as the yeah. transport pilots. Yeah, the transport pilots were the bottom of the barrel. Uh, and many of them had their, tra- their their shitty training cut short, and some of them had never flown at night, which, if anybody is unaware, the D-Day landings were at night. Because uh, they were the, the, the night before the, the, the beach landings. Well, and also, I feel like in general, like, even to get your private pi- pilot's license right now, like, I, I don't have, fucking have one, but there's actually a girl I went to high school with who, like, actually had, like, her, like, light plane license. I'm pretty sure you have to, like, fly at night. That's like generally just like yeah. a thing that you do. You know, the 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 pilot training that most pilots got um through most of aviation history in the military was largely dog shit and cut short. Uh because for a really long time, even though these guys are pilots, which we all now consider, you know, well, he knows how to fly a helicopter, he knows how to fly a jet. He's probably smart, right? Um, you know, he has an ing- most of the time they've, you know, aviation or engineering degrees um back then they were just people (laughs) that like you know they didn't come from a a, a proud history of pilots because planes had been around for like 20 years or whatever you know that at this point they're just throwing enough shit to the wall that sees what sticks and especially when you need thousands of pilots really really fast like here's a plane well i guess actually thinking about like so if the top, like if the A students were the fighter pilots and the B students were the bomber pilots and the C students were the transport pilots, the D students were probably the glider pilots, which yeah. is uh, a humbling thought. Yeah, it was actually um, the the glider pilots were uh, most of them came from the same like group as like airborne people, but they weren't technically considered airborne. Uh, like, have you ever seen We Were Soldiers? Uh, yeah, fucking years ago. So the Sergeant Major Plumley in that was actually had no combat landings ever as a paratrooper. He was a glider pilot, uh, huh. which arguably is more insane. So like, yeah, because you're like, it's like a controlled crash. You know, you're just kind of like, yeah. you know, you're like, well, well, you know, hopefully you don't hit too many trees on the way down. And two, there's two different models uh, of gliders, from my understanding, that landed on D-Day, and one of them was suicidally incompetently built. Um, oh yeah, wasn't most one like of them crashed? Wasn't one of them just like the weight distribution was just like totally the fuck off? 
I think so. I don't want to say for sure because somebody who went to like did their PhD on glider operations would be like, actually, and yet I didn't study this shit. So like, from statistically, one uh, one of the models was cartoonishly bad, uh, like fifty percent losses or or higher. I, I'm so I'm <laughs> I'm stating it right now that uh, the reason why that was is because one of the weight distributions was bad, and if you wrote your PhD on the subject, I want you to slowly flame my Twitter account over the course of the next two decades to show me that I was wrong. Yeah, they probably will. They probably will, uh, but it'll be funny. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you know, like uh, one of the, a, a very, very, very good historian named Max Hastings wrote extensively on this. Yeah. Um, he said that uh, the pilots were just absolutely the biggest liability in the entire allied army. Uh, pilots got lost. Uh, they simply read their altimeters incorrectly and otherwise simply botched what we'd consider very simple pilot skills. Uh, so, yeah, not good. Um, I refuse to accept that because I was told that this was the greatest generation, and there are uh, a lot of boomers lately who've been telling me that because their great-granddaddy fought in World War II um, that uh, you know we need to respect all the troops forever. Um, so I, I mean- I'm just going to need you to take that back. <laughs> yeah, I feel a little bit for him as as like somebody who loves studying like early tanks that like nobody knew what they were doing and like the officers who went to like cavalry school to ride horses and shit and like weird the tank broke down we don't know how to make this devil explosion <laughs> engine work we well, should probably just keep breathing the CO that the CO two that comes directly out of the engine into the crew compartment and now I'm so sleepy I mean it's like yeah. the same thing like uh, if you look at a lot of places where um. Coast Guard stations used to be. They used to be at different places and harbors because you'd actually have to row your fucking happy ass out into the surf in order to, like, you know, go pick up people off of, like, the boats that were breaking up on the shoals offshore. And, like, <laughs> and so that, like, once, like, the engine came around, I was like, oh, cool. We don't need to, like, be, like, right on the edge of the fucking harbor anymore because we don't need to, like, you know, be able to actually, like, swim out, the, swim the fuck out there. We could just start an engine. Yeah, one of the biggest hamstrings of militaries throughout time, uh, or military-adjacent organizations, as the Coast Guard is, I guess, technically now, uh, is tradition is stupid. Uh, but, you know, caught up in all of this was our boy Joseph. He's packed into a C- uh, C-47 with the rest of his unit, and began to take fire. The pilot quickly got lost, and many of the planes around him were shot out of the sky. He noted when they began taking fire, from his estimation, they were about 700 feet up, which is pretty goddamn close to the ground. <laughs> Uh, but Joseph realized that this whole plane in the middle of a flak storm thing was not going to get any better for him. So he waited as long as he could, but seeing that the plane was now only about 390 feet above the ground, he knew he needed to jump or he was never going to, or he just simply wasn't going to be able to, uh, he was going to die. So he ca- he jumped and he came down like a goddamn meteor slamming into the roof of a nearby church. That's fine. Uh, un- well, he was unhurt, which is shocking, but unfortunately <laughs> for him, uh, he was also like he he landed completely by himself. He does not know if anybody from his plane survived. Um, and he landed by himself on uh, on top of a church, right next to like the, the steeple of the church, which was full of Germans uh, that that were manning a machine gun that was firing into the paratroopers, <laughs> and they then began shooting at him. That's fine. So he. Yeah, he turned and ran uh, across the roof, only drawing more fire. And while he thought that he should climb the steeple and attempt to assault them, he decided that he should just run instead. So, uh, you know, it's a pretty large church. And the only way to get off it is just slide down the roof and fall to the ground again, uh, which, again, he was unhurt. 
the guy's fucking indestructible. <laughs> uh, he grabbed all of his gear, which certainly weighed more than him, and sprinted off into the darkness and hid in the cemetery until the Germans stopped shooting at him and left him alone. Perfect. I'm I'm assuming they thought he died. Uh, but just because Joseph was alone did not mean he was going to forget that he was given a mission. As a demolitions guy, it was his job to blow up some bridges that led towards the Omaha Beach area to ensure the Germans couldn't roll some tanks as, in, as a counteroffensive once the beach landings had begun. There was, however, a slight problem. Because of misdrops, like many paratroopers, he had no fucking idea where he was or how far he was from, the, uh, uh, from his area. And because he wasn't like a stick commander, he didn't have a map. Uh, knowing that he wasn't going to get his bearing anytime soon, he decided to start freelancing. Uh, he saw a nearby power station, thinking rightfully that German troops in the area were probably using that power station to power searchlights and communications equipment in the area. So he decided that that power station had to go. He ran over there unopposed because the Germans probably would not suspect a single guy running around with a backpack full of bombs. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so he just started blowing up random chunks of the French countryside as he went, uh, and it worked. He blew up the power station completely unopposed, and nobody ever took a shot at him. Uh, he had no idea where he was uh, or where he was going, and he only found out the name of the town that he had landed in after the war was over. Perfect. Uh, figuring out that he that so far this had worked so well, he should just keep doing it, and he began looking around for more targets to blow up. Joseph also kind of thought that he shouldn't try to sneak around. Uh, for fear that he would move too slow. Uh, like, because he, by himself, he couldn't fight off anybody if he got ambushed. Uh, he only had his rifle with limited ammunition and some explosives. So he didn't want to get bogged down in a firefight that other groups of paratroopers would be able to fight through. Like, other paratroopers had entire offensives and took towns on their own. Uh, he, he, he was literally by himself, and that was, he couldn't do it. So he just started running. <laughs> Just sprinting through thick hedgerows of the Normandy countryside looking for shit to blow up. <laughs> you know, just living his best life. Uh, I mean, frankly, the I mean the last tour that I took through like France is basically the same thing. <laughs> I mean, I'm also pretty sure that, that this was uh <laughs> this was essentially probably the training of a certain uh French foreign legionnaire who shall remain nameless. <laughs> He's guest on the show. Uh now that is uh this is going really well. And he did blow up a few other things, uh, but then he burst through a hedgerow one too many and literally tripped into a Nazi machine gun nest. Uh, they had him dead to rights, and uh, he kind of knew he was fucked. He may have enjoyed blowing up Nazis, but he was smart enough to know that he was not getting out of the situation alive. So after a few seconds of thinking about how he was totally going to suicide bomb them or crowding knife fight parafu these guys, he just surrendered instead. Uh, Thankfully for Joseph, they end up, uh, he ended up surrendering to members of the Wehrmacht rather than the SS, who had a tendency to execute paratroopers on D-Day. Uh, and they actually took him to a, uh, uh, a prisoner center, like a, a, a POW collection area. Freedom Center. And these guys, yeah, uh, uh, People's Freedom Center for the Reich. Right. Uh, uh, and actually, according to Joseph, the soldiers were pretty cool in that they just kind of took his stuff and didn't rough him up in any way. Is led him back to the prisoner uh, holding area. So what I'm hearing uh, here is that uh, they treated him better than uh, most riot police, for instance, might treat a protester. Absolutely. Uh, and much like uh, that, they are also Nazis. So, like... <laughs> so, I mean, you know, just like same-same. You know, I mean... Yeah. Uh, he had more rights, which is legitimately true. <laughs> <laughs> 
and and the the prisoner holding area came under artillery bombardment because like you know the Allied forces were just kind of throwing shit to the wind. They didn't know where that's where the the holding area was. And Joseph used that as a, a, a cover to try to escape, but he didn't get very far. That will become one of many escape attempts uh, that he will attempt throughout his time in World War II. Uh, but once there, he started uh, being interrogated and his dog tags were taken. During interrogation, uh, he called his uh, interrogator, and this is his, his words, quote, a cock-sucking son of a bitch. Mm. <laughs> All right. Uh, the the interrogator then ordered a soldier to beat the hell out of him, uh, and he woke up several days later with what he called a noticeable dent in his skull, uh, <laughs> something that remained with him until death, because uh, <laughs> TBIs don't go away. Uh, I don't know how big this was, but according to his daughter, uh, uh, he never talked about the war, but she said that he that she could put an entire finger like uh, lengthwise in the dent and it would cover it. So. He put he suffered a pretty serious skull fracture and received no medical treatment whatsoever. So, well, uh, Joe, as a uh, as a um, as a recipient of uh, a significant amount of head trauma, how's that? Uh, how's that going to work out for somebody? Uh, I will say his is the best case scenario. <laughs> <laughs> so, about the dog tags, that was pretty interesting. There's conflicting stories about why they took his dog tags, and that is not normally a procedure for processing POWs. Um, Joseph didn't know what they intended on using them for, but he would eventually. The Germans were attempting to use captured American uniforms and equipment to try to blend into American lines and cause chaos. They did this immediately following D-Day, and again, more successfully during the Battle of the Bulge a few years later. However, uh, whoever was carrying Joseph's dog tags did not get far. They got shot and left dead in the field. Eventually, uh, Graves registration troopers came around, saw the body, saw a dead guy in an American uniform wearing Joseph Byerly's dog tags, and just kind of took it at face value. So the dead German was buried in France under Joseph's names, and a few months later in September, his family received the news that their son was dead. But Joseph was not dead. The same day that Joseph's family uh, held a funeral for him in Muskegon, he was being processed as a German POW into Stalag Luft Three. I mean, prison it, camp near Poland. In fairness, being uh being alive at you know the German you know Luft three was probably better than you know either being alive or dead in Muskegon. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of kind of push if we're honest. Yeah, this podcast is a hard anti Muskegon stance. Uh, <laughs> all, all six people who live there will be deeply unhappy. We're gonna, uh, we're gonna lose the entire Muskegon audience. I know. Watch like. 80 of my patrons uh, are, are all live in Muskegon. They were like going to have like a Joe Kasabian, like fucking, uh, they're going to give you the key to the goddamn city. Burn me in effigy now. Uh, <laughs> now, Joseph's stay in the camp was not good. He was what the Germans would call a hard prisoner to keep. And his punishment was being beaten and tortured nearly every day. He never listened to the guards and constantly mouthed off. He didn't work and was constantly caught trying to escape. In one situation, he got shot in the shoulder by a tower guard while attempting to help another POW steal potatoes from a farmer's nearby farm. Uh, due to the distance from the shot, uh, the tower guard could not pick out who exactly he shot. So he disappeared into the crowd like, oh, I don't know what he looked like. Uh, the rest of the prisoners hit him and tended to his gunshot wound on their own with no medical equipment. Cool. Joseph's a hard motherfucker. Cool. <laughs> like... <laughs> I mean that that is metal as hell, right? Like, don't worry, we got you. Uh, bite on the stick. We're gonna we're gonna burn this shit closed 
with like the stinger that we made. Right. Like it, just once again, like going back to like, I don't know, some fucking civil war shit right there. Like, Oh no, it's fine. Like, yeah, just a uh, bite on the stick. And like, uh, I don't know. We'll bleed you with leeches, I guess. I don't know. Something. Listen, Sergeant Byerly, your humors are all off. <laughs> We're going to have this guy adjust your neck. Oh, it's going to be great when, uh, you know, society collapses and, you know, we go back to that, except it's just vibes. Like, uh, I don't know, your vibes are <laughs> off. Like, we're probably going to have to, we're probably going to have to bleed you a little. You know, just give us your Real wrist. Gonna... Williamson energy. Right. Uh, just... You're going to line this energy crystal up with your chakras. I'm missing my legs. <laughs> Shut up. Just shoving just crystals into the fucking wound. <laughs> Joseph was doing what every soldier thinks they would do if they were captured, but almost nobody ever does. That is like whenever his guards told him anything, he would he learned German, like words in German, just so he could swear at his guards. Which is like <laughs> a, le- a level of spite I respect deeply. Uh and he would only like he would either swear at them or just tell him his name, rank, and serial number, and he refused to work. Which like most of what they were doing is like working on farms and stuff. Um, but everybody else normally just kind of goes with it to make their lives easier because they see people like Joseph get their fucking ass kicked and shot constantly. Uh, eventually Joseph did break out though. He was joined by his friends Brewer and Quinn who would think like, you think this is some like great escape type shit, but it wasn't the case. According to Joseph, all he did to break out was bribe a camp go to three packs of cigarettes. <laughs> Man, that would that, that would have made such a like you know less impressive movie than fucking Steve McQueen jumping over a fence with a motorcycle. Yeah, and also like it's it's impressive to think about this. Much like American POW camps, these are all like German soldiers. They're not, I don't know, like they're not just like a paramilitary. Like they're just supposed to be professional soldiers. Like three cigarettes, good enough for me. <laughs> I mean, based on everything the, that you've ever said in any of your episodes, that kind of makes sense. It like, does, you know, uh, and. Le- I guess people, there's a lot of value in lucky strikes or something. I don't know. They, they, they just walked away from their post and let him cut a hole in the fence. And then he ran for it. Um, now, while the Germans, for obvious reasons, much like us, didn't want their prisoners to discover the location of their camp within Germany. Uh, but the, the prisoners all did anyway, through intel and bribes, through camp guards like I just talked about. Uh, but they learned that they were actually damn near Poland rather than like in the middle of Germany. Uh, so they knew, like, well, we can't run west. We'd be running across the entire length of Germany. We have to run east and try to meet the Soviets. Um, so they made plans to jump on a train and make for the Soviet advance, which was getting closer and closer by the day. Um, as a group of escape POWs, they couldn't just like go to a train station, right? Um, they had to pick a line uh, by direction of travel, which you think would be relatively easy, but they fucked that up. Uh, the train that they jumped on was actually going towards Berlin, not Poland. Uh, so when they ended up in an empty like train yard, they got out of the train immediately realized that they screwed up and like, uh, ran into a civilian who's like, yeah, yeah, I'll take care of you. And then they immediately called the Gestapo on them. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's not like a fucking Indiana Jones trope. Like they'll ah, t- probably like, I feel like that's like the, uh, the one with, uh, uh, Sean Connery. Where they like, you know, it's like, oh, where, where are we going? It's like, we're not going away from Berlin. We're going towards it. And it's- <laughs> I'm, I'm not steeped in, in, in uh, Indiana Jones lore as I should be other than the sword fight. I mean, and you're not even, <laughs> not even an officer, so there's no re- reason you should even be steeped in the sword fight. Yeah, yeah. 
but you know, for obvious reasons, the Gestapo did not think this group of POWs was POWs. Why the fuck would they have ended up in the middle of Berlin? They thought they were spies. Because what kind of dumbass POW stumbles their way into literally the heart of Nazism? Uh, <laughs> the Gestapo did Gestapo things for them on day de- for for days and days at a time before convincing them uh, that these guys were in fact spies. Even though by Joseph admit Joseph's admission, he never said anything because he didn't know anything. Uh, and he, by the end, he's like, I really wish they just would have killed me because they fucked him up pretty bad. Uh, you know, Gestapo stuff. After days of being tortured, the Gestapo decided they were going to shoot them. And that is when they are rescued by the most law and order ass way in human history. Something that I'm sure you will appreciate. Officers from the Wehrmacht confronted the Gestapo and said that since they were POWs, the Gestapo had no jurisdiction to execute them. And then they were just handed back to the Wehrmacht. Oh, it makes me think of watching fucking Downfall. Like, <laughs> but isn't that like the most German thing ever? Like, ah, you got me. You're technically correct. The best kind of correct. Yeah, I mean, one of my uh, one of my best friends lives in a like you know my sister whose wedding I went to last year. She's actually a, 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 a law professor in Offsburg, Germany, like deep in the south, kind of near Switzerland. And everything that she tells me about from Germany exactly fits with that conception of the way that German society functions. Like, I mean, I lived in Germany for a very small amount of time and I was 17 and in the army. So I didn't get to like enjoy Germany. Uh, but you know, it's, it, it says something of like how deeply bureaucratic the evil, like, you know, the banality of evil or whatever that it's like, you've exited like every Gestapo officer there has definitely killed at least 50 people, but oh, nope, can't kill this one. They've got paperwork. Move along now. Well, was like, did you watch, uh, was it the captain or whatever the fuck it is yet? I have not. It's the one about like the the German army deserter who um like starts uh pretending to be like an SS captain. Like he like finds like a dead officer and starts wearing the uniform and like ends up like, you know, just like becoming like ending up in control of like a fucking like SS death camp. Essentially, just because he like in the latter days of the war, just because everything is so fluid and no one knows who anyone else is. And like and part of the whole trope of that movie is essentially just that, like, you know, so much of that society was just based on certain social cues and like deference to authority and like that whole thing. And so as a result, like, you know, if he just comes in and blusters a little bit, there's no one who's actually going to question the fact that he's, you know, the person in charge. Yeah, that, uh. It reminds me of our British Free Corps episode where a guy walked up. He's like, yep, I'm a field marshal. And the Nazis are like, yeah, all right. Uh, but like, also imagine like stealing Valor to try to get like a discount on a car or something. And you end up like, oh, you're a captain. Come on over here. We have a job for you. And you, you steal Valor accidentally into becoming a concentration camp commander. Yeah. I mean, essentially, that's like what the whole thing is. He does it like just so he doesn't get shot. And so he can get some extra rations and then just ends up, you know, like, being in charge of, like, where you're going to, like, group massacre and bury prisoners. You know, normally I don't have a problem with stealing Valor. I'm willing to make an exception for this guy. (laughs) 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 This guy sucks. Uh, But, like, you know, when you escape from a POW camp, you, you, you... There's bad things waiting for you when you get recaptured. Uh, and, And the POWs were handed back to the Wehrmacht, and they're thrown in solitary confinement and routinely tortured. Uh... But uh, as soon as they could, they started planning another escape. And they, they got the chance on another technicality. Uh, uh, the Red Cross showed up to do an inspection on the POW camp. And one of the things they couldn't do was have POWs in solitary confinement. 
Uh, so like they had to immediately release them as a PR move. So the red cross wouldn't notice, uh, but they use that to pretty much escape immediately. <laughs> Perfect. In January of 1945, the same three people paid some of their fellow prisoners to stage a fight and then used the confusion to hide inside some empty barrels that are due to be transported off of the camp because this is some solid snake shit. <laughs> as they're being transported out, the wagon that they were on uh, that had the barrels on it hit a rut in the road and overturned, spilling them out into the middle of the street in broad daylight. Uh, once they fell out of their barrels like a cartoon, they were directly within gun sights of the tower guards who immediately opened fire on them, killing Brewer and Quinn. Joseph took off running into the woods. He jumped into an icy stream and waded upriver, hoping to throw the dogs off that he knew the Germans would eventually use to track them. After a few days, he realized that he was pretty much home free and once again began heading east. After freezing his ass off for a night, he decided that he would sleep off uh, uh, like the cold night in a loft of a nearby barn. As he settled in, armed men who were clearly not German approached the farm. He thought they might be Russian soldiers, like the the scouting party of the of the coming advance, and who's about to come down and be like, "Hey, I found you!" Uh, but then he watched them murder the farmers and stealing everything in sight. It turns out they were bandits passing themselves off as partisans. Uh, whoops, good. Uh, which was which super common in the Eastern Front. Uh, yeah, the the line between gang of roving like rapists and murderers and partisans blurred more often than not. Um. But he, he stayed up in the loft. Uh, probably a solid choice there. And the next, uh, the next day, he started hearing tanks approach the farm. So he did the first thing that came to mind when he saw the tanks. Uh, he simply walked down there and flagged them down. He didn't exactly know any Russian other than uh, two words. So he held up two packs of lucky strikes and approached the first tank. Using the only two words that he knew, he shouted, American and comrade. Somehow this totally worked. Uh, <laughs> I actually do the and, same thing every time I see uh, the anti-fast super soldiers approach my house. Yeah, yeah. I, I jump out of my window with Lucky Strikes and, uh, I don't know, uh, commu- a copy of the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> to collect their works of uh, uh, Luxembourg. <laughs> yeah, somehow this totally worked and nobody shot the guy who seemingly appeared out of nowhere and didn't speak their language. Uh, a very un-Soviet soldier thing to do. Uh, the the Soviets did have somebody in their column who spoke English and brought him forward to translate for him. Joseph quickly explained to him that he was an escaped POW and that in his words, quote, I want to go with you and defeat Hitler. All right. Uh, the first Soviet tank commander thought this is just about the funniest thing he had ever heard, but told him no, uh, but he would bring him back to like the rear area. But word of the random American ha- ha- that they found popped up uh, that quickly spread throughout the tank column. Before long, their commander came to see what was going on. That's when Joseph met Guards Captain Alexandria Samusenko, the only female tank commander in the entire first Guards tank army. She's also commonly known as the first ever woman of any nation's armor branch to become an officer. And I couldn't find anything to disprove that. Uh, Samusenko herself had one hell of a, of a path leading her to that moment. She enlisted in the Red Army as a private in infantry and fought her way through the insanity of the Winter War on foot. She survived that Jesus. and requested... Yeah, she survived that and transferred to armor where she earned herself a commission as World War II started. There's also a... I don't want to say it's not true, but it seems incredibly unlikely a story that she fought in the Spanish Civil War uh, on the sides of the Republicans. Seems incredibly unlikely because she would have been about 13. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 13 or 14, though she did enlist in the Red Army at 15. So, like, it's possible. 
All right, I'll back it. Uh, but someone did ask her about like uh, Barcelona, and she said she had never been there. So it seems unlikely. Um, as the Nazis steamrolled into the USSR, Samosenko's native Belarus was one of the most ravaged areas in the entire uh, in the entire part of that insanely violent front of an insanely violent war. In short order, she lost her husband and entire family to the Nazis. When she jumped that hurdle, uh, she survived the Battle of Kursk, the largest tank battle in human history, and almost certainly the largest that will ever happen. Uh, during that battle, and only that battle, she became a tank ace in destroying three Tiger I tanks uh, without her tank being blown up from underneath of her, which is incredibly uncommon. For her heroics, she was uh, awarded the Order of the Red Star and promoted. And that's how she ended up where she is now. So they, they both all, they both should have died about 16 times by now. Uh, Joseph, it turned out, pled his case to the right person. He again told her that all he wanted to do was join them on their march towards Berlin. Like, I just want to do hood rat stuff with you guys. <laughs> she, she shrugged and just like, yep, come aboard my tank. So that, uh, that tank happened to be a lens lease American made Sherman tank. So there he was, an American skate from a Nazi POW camp aboard a Soviet woman's American made tank in Poland. Life comes at you fast. Perfect. Just absolutely like fucking top notch. Yeah, he he jumped aboard her Sherman and quickly they joined forces to absolutely wreck Nazi shit across Poland. <laughs> uh, before before long, it, he also uh, probably had. I don't know how this hasn't been turned into a movie, and if it has, I haven't found it. But Joseph lived every POW's dream that he, along with his new Soviet friends, storm the gates of Stalag Luf three and liberate his own former POW camp. I mean, I feel like it's one of those things where probably, like, through the Cold War and even to now, I mean, the Soviets don't want to do it because it features an American, and the Americans don't want to do it because it features a Soviet. Well, I think one of those things is true, because the Soviets definitely love Joseph Byerly, but we'll get to that point. Uh, using his skills with explosives, he quickly made friends by breaking into the camp's vault and robbing it blind with them. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> I mean... Nothing brings communism and capitalism together like looting from fascists. I mean, I, I feel like that was uh, almost the, um, what's that fucking movie? Kelly's Heroes. It was almost yeah. the moral of Kelly's Heroes. Yeah. Uh, he also quickly joined them in a time-honored uh, tradition of executing camp guards as they attempted to flee into the woods. <laughs> <laughs> My man. You know he knew those guys personally, like, what's up, Peter? Just shooting him in the back. <laughs> You uh, motherfucker. Yeah, uh, deny me my fucking bread ration now, you motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah, I was really wanting this part to be like where Joseph and Alexander just fall in love in the weirdest tank-based romance known to man, but that was not to be, uh, unfortunately. Instead, Joseph was badly wounded in a German dive bomber attack, uh, and he was evacuated. The next time he woke up, he was in a Soviet field hospital somewhere in Poland. Also, small side note here. Uh, he was awarded the uh, the the liberation of Warsaw medal by the Soviet Union. The less said about the Soviet liberation of Warsaw, the better. Uh, we're just gonna move right past that. Uh, yeah. that's an episode unto itself. Yeah, we're um, we're just uh, this tankies. You're free to get mad about it. You're gonna eventually get mad about it, but you know, not not at the moment. Yeah, it turns out they're asking for it. I'm just kidding. Don't don't isolate that. Uh, <laughs> and canceled. Well, and uh, so it was nice to be on the, with you on the last episode of uh, Lions Led by Donkeys and the the Donkey to Tanky Pipeline. Uh, <laughs> so 
if as if his last couple weeks, he'd been with that tank column for several weeks to uh, uh, maybe a couple months. It's not entirely clear. Uh, but if that wasn't weird enough, he woke up the same day legendary Soviet Marshal Georgi Zhukov was walking into the field hospital for an inspection. <laughs> just randomly meeting all like the heavyweights of the Soviet military. Like if he had just like high five Vasily Zaitsev, then played like one on one like horse basketball with Stalin, his life would have been complete. I mean, what what are we all? Uh, so Zhukov was walking through greeting each soldier, and he was very confused when he ran into a random dude who happened to speak no Russian. Uh, Joseph had picked up some Russian, but it was very clearly that something was off. That was when someone told him Joseph's story. Uh, Zhukov asked him if there was anything that he could do for him, and Joseph pointed out that he had lost all of his identification, uh, and if there was anything he could do for that, because like, they didn't have ID cards and he had no dog tags. So Zhukov promised that he would do what he could. The next day, his aide arrived to the hospital and gave him a letter in Russian, explained to him that it didn't matter if he could read what was on that letter, but it would be his passport across the Soviet Union into Moscow. So for the next several weeks, Joseph bounced from one truck to another through the Red Army's vast logistics train to get all the way to the capital of the the USSR, at which point a Soviet officer walked him over to the American embassy and dropped him off, I'm assuming with a sick high five with an explosion noise afterwards. (laughs) Embassy staff looked at him like he was insane. Remember, he had no ID on him. And Joseph Byerly was legally dead. Uh, because after he explained who he was, they had the wonderful job of explaining to him, like, funny, you've been dead for a year. I mean, you know, <laughs> we've all had hangovers like that. I mean, you know, the, whom's among us? Yeah, uh, they stationed an armed guard to watch them as they looked into it. But because Joseph was Joseph, he attempted to beat the guard up and rejoin the Russians. Perfect. Uh, but be- because he just got his brain scrambled by a German dive bomber, he admits he was too weak to fight the guy and he got beaten down. Now, the U.S. Embassy finally did their job and confirmed their identity by asking him some things about Muskegon, which I'm assuming is pronounced Muskegon correctly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he is also, like, he was so messed up from the bomb, they couldn't just, like, send him back to his unit. Like, he couldn't just continue fighting in World War II. Yeah. So they decided that he would be sent home against his wishes, mind you. Just like, well, if you're just going to send me home, I'll just go fight with the Soviets. Um, and his son to his credit, says, like, yeah, his dad definitely would have died in the Battle of Berlin because he, he wouldn't have known any better uh, and would have just been murked. Uh, but <laughs> he took a long route back to the U.S., which included a ride on the HMS Samaria, which happened to be the same ship he took to the U.K. in 1943. Uh, small world. Huh. So he made it back to Michigan April 21st, 1945. In 1946, the same priest that presented over his funeral officiated his wedding. Jesus. Who he married so quickly? <laughs> uh, well, he was never married uh, the first time. Uh, but yeah, he did the normal soldier thing and got married probably the first person who was nice to him. Yeah, all right. That's fair. Now, with the war over, Joseph nor his family was going to forget about his deep, deep romance with the Red Army. He traveled back to the USSR six different times to celebrate Victory Day with them rather than with the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> He is also rocks. awarded for his brave service to the Red Army. He is awarded the Order of the Red Banner, an honor that he shares with Leon Trotsky, Vasily Arkhipov, Georgi Zhukov, and Vasily Zaitsev. Fuck yeah. He is also the only American to ever be awarded that decoration that I could find. I could not find any other American that's ever given this. Uh, he is also given the aforementioned Liberation of Warsaw Medal. 
And whenever he went on his victory day uh, marches in uh, uh, the Soviet Union and then Russia, because he kept going, uh, he wore all of his Soviet medals with his American medals, and he looks like a North Korean general with all of his bling. That fucking rules. That's so fucking good. And then while visiting the USSR, he made sure to stop and pay tribute to his, uh, what I'm going to call his long-lost love, Captain Samosenko, who died fighting in Poland before the war was over. He laid uh, flowers at her grave. Joseph died in 2004, but his family continues and still does have a very close relationship to Russia because his son, John, was the U.S. ambassador to Russia from 2008 to 2012. <laughs> 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 Meaning oh, if there stellar. was some kind of time machine, his own dad would try to beat up his own son's armed guards to escape his embassy. That's just fucking uh, amazing. And the, the Soviet, uh, or now the Russian uh, uh, military museum in St. Petersburg has an entire display data dedicated to Joseph uh, Byerly. Ah, oh, it's fucking perfect. It's so Which fucking is, good. Uh, I believe Muskegon has one as well, but I'm going to say, uh, you know, if I'm going to be honored in a military museum, I think the one in St. Petersburg is probably going to be a lot more impressive. Sorry, Muskegon. Right, there's going to be like at least like a bust of like your head and shoulders and like... Probably some like patriotic music going on in the background. Like it's gonna be, it's gonna be pretty fucking tight. Yeah, yeah. They they definitely didn't skimp, and like his son went and gave like a speech at it too. Um, so, shocks. We do something on the show called questions from the Legion, and every once in a while, um, when we have guests on, I try to include them. Like, uh, if it's a normal guest or someone I'm interviewing, I generally leave them out of it and don't bring them into uh into the fold but you're familiar with our show um so we have a question of the legion which normally works if you donate one dollar you get access uh to the the show's discord and then you get to ask us a, a largely innocent question uh at the end of the show um so Lar- largely innocent is doing a lot of fucking work in that phrase right there uh true because we, we get some we get some weird ones every once in a while um so I got. I'll, I'll ask two because you're you you are who you are. So you can ans- answer one of these questions. This one's from the Discord. Does any, anybody in Massachusetts actually know how to fucking drive? <laughs> uh, so similar to the way that we talk, um, the way that we drive is actually the right way to drive, and the rest of you are doing it wrong. Um, so just just so we're clear on this whole thing, like we are very like offensive drivers. And by offensive, I don't mean like offensive as in something is offensive, but rather offensive versus defensive. Um, but there is like a very much an inner logic to the way that we drive. Um, like it is very aggressive, but it's aggressive with like a purpose. So like, for instance, being someone who has lived and moved to the Pacific Northwest, you know that whole thing like on like I-5 in Seattle where like people will just get in the left lane and just stay there kind of regardless of what speed they're going. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's something we don't fucking stand for here. Uh, that's just, like, not something we, like, abide by. Like, if you're in the left lane, you're expected to be going at least, if not more than 15 miles over the speed limit. And that's Speaking just... of the Pacific Northwest, I think Seattle drivers are some of the worst I've ever experienced, and that's including, like, Kabul. Yeah, um, like, you it, know... It's real bad. And, like, that's a that, that's the thing. Everyone says, like... I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, you have to, like, actually learn how to... I don't know. You actually have to learn how to drive in Boston. And, you know, and part of it is also, too, like, there's not, there's a lot of people who drive here who aren't actually from here because we have so many colleges, universities. 
So like in particularly in like September and then in May, you get like the like shitty dad drivers who like inevitably have like New Jersey license plates and are trying to get to their daughter's commencement at like Northeastern. And they're just kind of like, you know, they, they don't really know. They can't really figure out how to drive around the city. They're like trying to follow the GPS, but it's like a little delayed and, you know, and it and inevitably some dickhead much like myself is uh, immediately behind them. Just like riding their fucking ass because like, I actually have somewhere where I want to be and I can't deal with like, Oh, well, you know, like, uh, maybe we could take this left or maybe we could take the next left. Like, you know, fuck that shit. So, <laughs> and, and I have, I've learned to survive driving in Seattle <clears throat> by learning, uh, from the locals. And that is don't use your turn signal. Don't look, just throw yourself into traffic. Everybody else will stop. Every time I go so out it, there, it's, it's like fun. every time I go out there to like go visit my parents, it's like just such a fucking nightmare. Like I yeah, can't. it's like a school of fish. You have to just stick with everybody or you'll die. Or like, you know, it, it's interesting in that it's kind of a lot like learning how to drive in Michigan where you have to pay attention to the guy in front of you simply because you have to watch where he swerves because he's the one seeing the potholes coming up. Well, and then like, I mean, I guess the best way I can describe it is driving in Boston, people are just aggressive, you know, like, and, and just in general, like the way that we well, not are just Boston. Yeah. But I mean, like in the, generally, like in the Northeast, like people are just aggressive. Like, you know, from, like, Philadelphia to, like, you know, Portland, Maine. Um, and, you know, both in the way that we drive and in the way that we act. Like, it's just kind of, like, generally, like, a, you know, a slightly more aggressive outlook. But as it turns out, I kind of prefer that to the way that it ends, you know, the way that, like, the Pacific Northwest and, like, California operate, where it's, like, passive-aggressive. Like, I'd rather someone just, like, fucking cut me off and then, like, speed off and, like, you know, do whatever than the kind of like Seattle thing where you're trying to pass somebody on the right and they just kind of gradually speed up over time. So you can't actually pass them on the right because like it would offend their sense of order. Oh man. So shocks. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, it's sh- it was short notice, uh, yeah, you know, an emergency, uh, off the bench replacement for Nick. Thank you for, thank you for doing that. Um, everybody, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, shocks. Uh, would you do you have anything you'd like to plug your Twitter of, of your sick law beefs? Um, I mean, you can follow me at shocks because I've been on uh, I've been on Twitter longer than fucking anybody ever should. Um, <laughs> I think it's like fucking like 13 years or so now. Um, and I guess too, if uh, given recent events, if anyone feels the need to throw any money at anything that isn't someone in the uh, the Bethay universe. So if it isn't hell of a way to die, and if it isn't lines led by donkeys, and if it isn't trash features, anybody else, uh, donate to the National Lawyers Guild. Um, if you ever watch a protest, the folks who are in the green caps, all around protesters who are yelling at cops for doing all sorts of illegal shit, those are National Lawyers Guild members. It's a it's a leftist, uh, you know, um, you know, kind of labor organization or not labor organization, lawyer organization that um, does a lot of really good work for legal observing and they definitely deserve your money. That's, that's a really good point. Yeah. Donate. If you donate to any bail fund, you donate to any nonprofit or whatever that, um, that benefits uh, our comrades in the streets and you DM or email me, you proof to do that. I will send you a free digital copy of a book of your choice. So, um, Put up or shut up, put your money where your mouth is, or hit the street, guys. Uh, And until then, 
We'll see you next time.